I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Do you know what month this is, Santosh? I do. It's International Women's Month. And you came to me and said, hey, I have this handy dandy list of some (laughs) well-known medical women. Just as you had three incredible uh, people from the African-American community that made wonderful contributions to medicine and science, I wanted to come back with uh, some wonderful women who have made uh, contributions in medicine and actually whose work is continuing to make contributions in medicine and science and pay homage to them. Cool your jets. It's medicine, not rocket science. Aha! It's (laughs) like I'm supposed to be the one. For everybody new joining, my wife is Swati Mohan, the, the voice of the Mars landing systems engineer oh my gosh (laughs) watch your back neil degrasse tyson (laughs) (laughs) completely different thing she's an engineer he's an astronomer in space yeah (laughs) that's true i can't i can't yeah (laughs) and i have to keep my voice down just a little bit because they're trying to get to sleep right now otherwise bang zoom right to the moon And she really can. She, you know, just drop a couple of calls and there'll be like, you know, black SUVs at my front door just dragging me out. I'll just end up in a capsule without an oxygen pack. All right. So, Santosh, tell us about these women through history. 
Yeah, I, and and Josh, I was so uh, kind of struck, and I was in awe with the number of women there are to kind of choose from. Um, there are so many wonderful minds in medicine. Uh, I chose three. Going to take you back all the way, all the way back to the beginning, to your very favorite ancient Egypt. Hot diggity. <laughs> I'm so happy you're excited by this. And we're going to talk about uh, a woman simply known to us in this day and age as Metrodora. And this was actually, you know, when ancient Greece and ancient Egypt in between 200 to 400 CE, common era. So we don't know exactly when she was. Uh, that's when her era is listed. She did not live to be 200. So she didn't live during that whole time. <laughs> but this is a woman in the era of ancient Egypt when Greek empire was spanning and coming over. She was not only a, a great physician, but she's the author. She's the first woman author that we know of to write a medical treatise in Western medicine. And what and, did this medical treatise? <laughs> it was a book. It was a text called On the Diseases and Cures of Women. So this was one of the pioneers to say that we really should know and understand how to take care of women specifically, okay? But she made an interesting kind of deviation in that she studied gynecology very heavily, but she was not actually interested in obstetrics. So she wasn't interested in, um, you know, labor and delivery and what would later happen in terms of surgery for uh, for labor and delivery and childbirth. So she really stuck to uh, maladies in non-pregnant women and, and wrote about that. Her, not contemporaries, but slightly forefathers, so she's reading Hippocrates. She shared his ideas on hysteria, um, which if People haven't heard of that in the medical context. It's because it isn't really a quote-unquote medical thing. It, this was in the era, Josh, when doctors thought that craziness or madness or psychosis in women was caused by a wandering uterus. Yeah, or oh, of course. The Carmen yeah. San Diego uterus. Well known. Yeah. <laughs> well known in the medical world. <laughs> It was, so hyster is actually the, the the uterus itself. That's the Greek word hyster. And so hysteria was a wandering uterus. All right. So the that's one of the things that she shared, which you know didn't really carry over. However, a bunch of other uh, issues that dealt with women, not only with abnormal diseases, but also normal physiology, she went to treat. So she examined the science of and the menstrual cycle. She developed therapies for treating menorrhagia, which is when a woman will have very, very heavy bleeding. And of course, this can lead to anemia uh, with blood loss. And so she helped come up with, uh, with medical cures for these. She used uh, intravaginal and intraurethral rowels to cure local infections. Um, women were really discouraged, not just, you know, for medicine, but they weren't supposed to do surgery at all. 
but she actually did um, perform embryotomies, which are abortions from uh, a pregnant woman who would have like an ectopic pregnancy. So, you know, actually taking the embryo out of the fallopian tube and saving their lives that way. She developed and codified a classification for vaginal discharge, suggested surgical treatment for breast cancer and uterine cancer, which was part of Hippocratic dogma, meaning that if you cannot treat a disease, then you you must cure it with scalpel and flat iron, meaning you got to cut it out. Prior to this, it wasn't really considered. Uh, but yeah, she, she wrote and left us this beautiful book, two volumes, 63 chapters. We, we don't know if a part is missing, but right now there's no obstetrics in there after all. Um, Josh, this is a weird you one. You left out some of the best parts. It's alphabetized. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little obsessive in my heart. <laughs> Can you imagine? So prior to this, you're 100% right. People were classifying diseases maybe by like location or type and this kind of a thing. But she actually created an index and a heading so that people could actually turn to the page according to where in the alphabet their disease started with. So yeah, she created an index. The first um, Google. Yeah, it was the very first one. So, She's not the first so woman to I'm have done gonna, this. She's the first person. So I'm going to throw in a couple extra things because you are dipping into one of my favorite historical eras. Although she was born in Egypt, where she practiced is a little bit varied uh, as the borders between Egypt and Greece were fairly fluid in those days. Right. Uh, yeah. Her name is actually Greek. Metrodora means uh, uterus and birth or gift and uterus. Basically, she was a women a womb gift. Womb uterus is right. the is the word. It's a little tricky. So her so it was more likely than not a title as a result of her studies and not the name she was born with, unless her mother was just really proud. This is my child, gift of the womb. <laughs> She lived around the end of the 7th century AD, which would be, and some of the treatises that she wrote uh, for all the ones they had on the uterus, abdomen, and kidneys, all of these come from one scroll found in an Italian library by a researcher who stumbled across it by accident. <laughs> I love that. This was a true clinician, Josh. So this wasn't a woman who was studying, you know, anatomy, physiology, and then kind of relating it. She was a practicing doctor. Aside from, you know, diagnosing diseases in there, she actually does have procedures in place. She references exams done um, with digital exams. So we still do, uh, you know, use our fingers to do internal exams for women to, to diagnose everything from, you know, pregnancy to cervical cancer, and then using a speculum. And Josh, this blew me away because modern times, right? We think of a speculum, you have to have like clean steel, but they had speculums back then. And uh, she actually, she put out a few other of those, uh, what do you call it? Those practices where a person could actually read it and train um, how to, you know, properly examine a woman. To I had that, that point. Yeah. She actually uh -huh. established guidelines. They are in her writings. She established guidelines to determine whether a woman had been sexually abused or assaulted. Um, wow. Some of her surgery on diseases of women involved reconstruction of, as you mentioned, the face, the breasts, and the hymen 
in which the case of the latter, her aim was to help women who were no longer virgins avoid social stigma. And the fact that I told you this name, Metrodora, was likely a title for all her work with women's health. Her mm -hmm. real identity was discussed in many circles, even back then, um, because, you know, they didn't have an internet. You know, you didn't know what somebody looked like unless you had personally seen them. Yes. <laughs> and for some of us, it's still a little difficult. But that aside, <laughs> there were, for many Sorry. years, there were rumors that Metrodora's true identity was none other than Cleopatra. So Sweet. in some research or papers that you'll, you may look up, she's referred to as Cleopatra Metrodora. This was brought all the way through when her works were kind of rediscovered in the medieval era, 1500s. Uh, when she was rediscovered and her works got translated all over the world. Now, lest you think she has been forgotten, Santosh, are you aware that there is an award for women in STEM called the Metrodora Award? Whoa, I did not know this part. Tell me, tell me. Here's their mission statement. Women are underrepresented in science. Only 22 women have been awarded a Nobel Prize in physics, chemistry, or medicine since Marie Curie, Marie Curie in 1903, oh, compared to 592 men. The United Nations has marked 2020 as a pivotal year for advancing gender equality, so they're recognizing women leaders and pioneering scientists with the Metrodora Awards. That's absolutely amazing. I, I think uh, it would be super cool if... Metrodora was indeed Queen Cleopatra, who herself overcame, we know, a lot of adversity to rule one of the greatest empires of all time. And it would be just vindication to know that she was, you know, also like just a genius doctor. But even if she wasn't, you know, if, if she was a physician in and of her own right, separate from Cleopatra, the impact that she had on women's health throughout the ages there are there's so much that would not have happened without her contributions. It's it's amazing. So I, I love that this award goes uh, by the name of Metrodora. So, but Santosh, I believe you told me you had three people to talk about tonight. So you're going to have to segue. Let's see how <laughs> easy it is now, buddy. <laughs> all right, all right. So. You know, Metrodora would walk like an Egyptian, but uh, sometimes, you know, there would be a total eclipse of the heart. And that is when you'd have to come, you know, for to talk about Dr. Helen Tausig, a cardiologist. All right. <laughs> That's an 80s music segue. <laughs> I'll allow it. Yeah, I went from the Bengals to... Uh, Someone, someone's going to write in about this that I forgot who wrote <laughs> Total Eclipse of the Heart. Um, Travel yeah. medicine now providing obscure bar trivia. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to come over to the modern era after this. And I'm so sorry, Josh. I think I skip your Victorian era because uh, Dr. Helen Tausig, who's our next physician, uh, was born in 1898. So I think we've passed our... 
our era of Victoria, correct? 1837 to 1901. Uh, so we're still in the Victorian era. Technically yeah. correct. The best yeah. kind of correct. The kind of correct. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm brushing the Victorian era right now. Although she was a baby. She was definitely a baby when Queen Victoria, uh, you know, permanently renounced her throne. Poor dear. And All right. So tell us about this talented baby and what she did. <laughs> she's a pediatric cardiologist, right? So I can only assume she, she's a baby doctor. No, no, no. She. <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> okay. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and teach you that pediatricians are not actually baby doc. Like I'm not. I'm not a little baby in a in an adult suit walking oh, around. <laughs> You're three babies <laughs> stacked on top of each other in a trench coat. Now, hopefully, none of you, none of those yeah. three babies that make up your trench coat-laden body was born with the Tetralogy of Fallot. Oh, that's true. Because that would make them a real blue baby. Oh, that was very cute. I like that. Uh, Tetralogy of Fallot uh, was so named for, for Dr. Fallot before the era of Dr. Tausig. And... It, it it contains four anomalies in the heart. I don't want to get too deeply into it right now. But essentially what happens with these babies is the blood, instead of circulating properly to, uh, you know, from the lungs to the heart and then out to the body so that you have oxygenated blood going out to the body, um, it actually bypasses the lungs so that the blood that is circulating around is poorly oxygenated and you have mixed oxygen blood, you have carbon dioxide retention. And these babies very early on are very blue. They are cyanotic. This was a very well-known heart defect. There are certainly other cyanotic heart defects, but there was this realization you had to fix these kids in a hurry or there would be no way to save them. They, they wouldn't make it out of infancy. Dr. Tausig, born in 1898, she came out of Massachusetts. She went to Cambridge School for Girls and then came out to uh, University of California, uh, Berkeley. She wanted to go to Harvard just like her dad. Her dad came out as an economist, but she wanted to go to Harvard Medical School. She was certainly qualified. And guess what happened? She was deemed disabled because she was a woman. Yeah. So she's applying now in the 1920s. She'd have to wait until 1945 until the first woman could go to, uh, to medical school. Elizabeth now, Blackwell. Elizabeth Blackwell. Now, Josh, women had been applying to Harvard Med since 1847. Okay, so there, it don't, it, this wasn't like, oh, but they didn't want to. No, so you're no. telling me she was at the end of a pretty long waiting list. Yeah, it was a pretty long waiting list. There was another school across the way in Baltimore called Johns Hopkins. Okay, they were accepting women. So she got in there. She wanted to specialize in internal medicine. She wanted to do adult doc, uh, medicine, just like you, Josh. Um, oh, oh, does that mean we were in the same Hogwarts Hopkins house? Yeah. <laughs> you were. You guys would both be Ravenclaw for like 100%. 100%. Uh, but she she wanted to go internal medicine. And then they said, oh, that's not a woman's field. You know, you can pick OBGYN or pediatrics. Uh, he says, well, I want to study the heart. So I'm going into pediatrics. And uh, pediatric cardiology, Josh, at that time, 
was in its infancy. <laughs> you couldn't wait to toddle out that joke. I could. It was just crying out to be said. Yeah. But now I am pacified. She she started out in pediatric cardiology. She studied congenital heart defects. She also studied um, acquired heart defects like rheumatic fever around, you know, a little bit before this time, right? We have the advent of radiology we have x-rays that you can use we we now had harnessed this you know rentgen had come along we had fluoroscopy okay and so dr Tausig actually made use of fluoroscopy to look at babies with cyanosis and so you could actually uh, you know it's probably a high radiation dose and everything that time, but she could actually study the physiology and the flow of blood, the cardiophysiology of these babies live. She said to herself, okay, I need to get blood to get to go to the lung. There, there is a way we could do this, you know, with all the wacky things that's going on, tetralogy and everything else. She said, I would like, instead of the ductus arteriosus, which is this remnant when you're an embryo, right? It actually, that thing shunts the blood away from the lungs when you are a baby in the womb so that your lungs don't work, they don't oxygenate the blood, so they bypass the lungs using the ductus arteriosus. But she, very wisely, she said, hey, you know what? I think these babies get sick because they need the ductus arteriosus, but this time to actually send blood to the lungs. Okay. It's going to do a different thing. And you actually need the ductus arteriosus to stay open, or you need to make a new one. Um, so she went to a very famous Dr. Robert Gross in 1939. Let me guess. Yeah. And she said, I have a great idea. And he said, is it to bring me my coffee? And she said, no, this will change medicine. And he proceeded to ignore. And then she went and found other people who agreed with her and yeah. they changed the world. Close. <laughs> you're <laughs> Okay, you're you're spot on. <laughs> I was going to try to say, oh, you know, actually at a twist. No, that's 100% what happened. Um, there was a little bit of a difference with the, you know, the get my coffee, but he wasn't maybe so awful. So he had created a surgery to close a patent ductus arteriosus in children who should not have it open, um, you know, to actually close it off and, and, and tie it off with the suture. So she said, hey, this is a shortcut. It, you know, it'll bypass the lungs, but we need the ductus arteriosus to be patent in kids with tetralogy of Fallot and a few other cyanotic heart diseases. Um, I, I think it would be good to create an artificial ductus. So she goes to Robert Gross, who had done this pioneering surgery, and he says to her, he says, Madam, I've had enough trouble closing the ductus arteriosus. I certainly don't want to try to make an artificial one. To his credit, that's fair, isn't it? Like you've dedicated your lives to doing one thing, and then someone else comes along and say, hey, uh, you know open it you up. You spend your whole life trying to close this? What if... <laughs> What if, run with me. Yeah. <laughs> what if yeah. we don't? <laughs> or, or better yet, make another one. Or we 
literally tear them a new one. Don't tell me you've never wanted to try it. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he totally shut it down. Um, she had to wait two years. 1942 comes around. Dr. Talsig got together with the new chief of surgery. Now, this was Alfred Blaylock. Okay. And for a long time, Josh, Dr. Blaylock had an assistant named Vivian Thomas, who's a guy, V-I-V-I-E-N, Vivian Thomas. He was an African-American gentleman. He came to Dr. Blaylock way, even before Dr. Taussig showed up, right? And he said, I have ideas on how to treat people, okay? So they had actually been working all this time, right? Um, taking care of children with uh, the, the hemorrhagic and traumatic shock, all right. So, uh, Josh, uh, you know when we did uh, battlefield medicine, we talked about crush syndrome, right? If you if you crush a limb, then all of a sudden all of the the proteins and the myoglobin and everything, um, you know, actually impacts the cardiovascular system, and they go into shock even before like losing blood, right? With Dr. Blaylock, Vivian Thomas actually had demonstrated, wow, th- it's actually the toxins that come out of that crushed leg that actually precipitates the shock. He was looking at the molecular cascade that causes things like capillary leak and vasodilation, all these things that lead to shock even before you have any kind of hemorrhage. This was brand new stuff. It was totally awesome. And so they're working together on shock. They're working on vascular and cardiac surgery. Um, there was a medical taboo still at this time, Josh, on operating on the heart. Thomas and Blaylock worked together to kind of overcome this taboo. So it's 1942, 1943. Towson comes up to Blaylock and uh, Thomas. Okay, Alfred Wait, Blaylock. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, let's, yeah. Uh, let's give descriptions of Blaylock and Thomas. How about yeah. uh, Blaylock looks like Alan yeah. Rickman. Snape. And Thomas. Yeah, is, yeah. Is Snape from Harry Potter. Yeah, and yeah. Thomas can look like yeah. most deaf. Most the rapper, the famous rapper. Yes. 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 Most. So, uh, so go <laughs> and picture that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very important. So keep that image in your mind. Dr. Helen Tosic approaches, ha- approaches yes. Alan Rickman and most deaf. And most deaf. Uh, Alan Rickman being Alfred Blaylock. Most deaf is being Vivian Thomas. And she goes up and he says, listen, I have this idea for Tetralogy of Fallot with blue babies and I think that we can make a shunt, an artificial shunt, to get blood in these babies from the, you know, from the heart to the lungs to get oxygenated, and then circulate back out through the body, um, and and you know bypass the you know the the traditional circulation so that these kids with tetralogy of Fallot can live. What do you think? And when everybody else had kind of shooed her away and all this kind of thing, Vivian Thomas especially, but the team of of, uh, Alfred Blaylock and Thomas got together to create this very first shunt, okay? And um, purportedly, okay, uh, Dr. Blaylock, when he saw what Vivian Thomas, his assistant, had created in the laboratory, this small tube that would keep a baby alive, he turned to him and he says, Vivian, that looks something like the Lord made. 
is there's a beautiful uh, kind of docudrama film called Something the Lord Made, starring Alan, Alan Rickman. Rickman. <laughs> Most deaf. <laughs> Most deaf. From 2004. They, they spent a year creating this, okay, uh, putting, putting all of this together. They, they did the, the surgery on dogs, okay, and then they worked their way. And then on November 29, 1944, they tried this procedure, adding in a new shunt, okay, the Blaylock Thomas Tausick shunt. This little 18-month-old girl, Eileen Saxon, subsequently, you know, poor thing. She wasn't, she, she wasn't completely successful. She passed away. But they tried this again on an 11-year-old girl. Complete success. A six-year-old boy. And they wrote this up. 1945 May came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association um, with Blaylock and Tausick both getting you know, credit for this. Sadly, Josh, sadly. Vivian Thomas had no mention in that first article. Uh, but yeah, at, at Helen Talsig, absolutely instrumental here. Vivian Thomas, absolutely instrumental. Uh, Alfred Blaylock, brilliant surgeon. Um, and yeah, she went on, Josh, after this. She had international more than one accomplishment in her life, Santosh. Yeah. <laughs> listen, listen. Uh, like in her in her lifetime, you know, thousands of kids who, who you wow, know. Wow, whoa, whoa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you that. Okay, that must have not, been exhausting. Not just her, but you know the team. Okay, by 1951, they had gotten to a thousand children, and the surgery had a mortality rate that came all the way down to five percent. I mean, it was really, really beautiful. So, Blaylock Thomas Tausick shunt is um, still useful for prolonging life. It's a first step in a, in further procedures. But she wasn't done, Josh. She was not done. Um, she came around, she continued to use x-rays and fluoroscopies to examine heart and lungs. And, um, so she became very skilled. Remember Josh, how they taught us to find that, that PMI point of maximum impulse on your fingers. Of course. Yeah, yeah, that was her. So she got very skilled at diagnosing heart conditions by feeling thrills and then feeling the shift. <laughs> yeah. And that's, <laughs> Okay, a thrill is when you feel a buzzing sensation under your fingertip because you know there's a there's a murmur that's kind of going through there. Um, but yeah, we're talking about a hundred academic articles, uh, biomedical ethics, evolutionary origins of heart disease. She published a magnum opus called Congenital Malformations of the Heart. When you talk about learning what can go wrong in embryology with the heart, you read. Tausig. That's the only one that you read. A, a big thing, Josh, that you and I actually learned about was about uh, thalidomide, okay, which was a drug um, that was being used for various things, um, but it caused birth defects um, when you gave thalidomide. Well, her being an embryologist, she recognized that you know you can't give thalidomide for morning sickness, and she worked to ban thalidomide. Ask your parents. So, they'll know. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so it made, uh, it made little mermaid-looking children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. I'm, very, I'm being very utterly serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're, <laughs> it, was, it caused limb defects exactly like what you're seeing. Some kids would look like they had flippers. I, I mean, that or the penguin. The penguin... The, pen, the penguin... Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. Yeah. From... <laughs> From Batman, not actual penguins. Yes, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Sausage, 
segue us into the next (laughs) woman of history. All right. We're going to stay in the modern era to uh, a little past World War II, or maybe in the midst of World War II, uh, was born Gertrude Bell Elion. Um, Josh, we're also going to segue a little bit away from medicine proper in terms of, you know, being a clinician. And Okay, but you better tie this back to medicine at the end or I'm going to be real disappointed. <laughs> you know how we do it with all of our episodes. <laughs> <They're just> so <laughs> how intimately tied with medicine. <laughs> I know. There's gonna... a, we have a standard to uphold, Santosh. And just <laughs> because you are an equal co-host doesn't mean you get to skate by on the rules. No, no, I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm so sorry, Josh. Can you ever forgive me? <laughs> no, but please, please, carry on. Stray away from medicine for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Lord. Okay. Okay. So, um, Gertrude or Trudy uh, Elion, uh, born all the way in 1918. Josh, she actually, she passed away not very long ago in 1999 um, in, uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So this is very much in the modern era. And what we're going to talk about with uh, Dr. Elion is the advent of modern methods for drug discovery. Okay. Now I'm not saying that she's like, you know, rooting around in the grass finding you know various psychedelics (laughs) but he's also not not saying that (laughs) i don't know i didn't find anything in her personal life talking about like getting high it was listed here that she had hobbies like photography travel opera ballet and listening to music so i i don't think draw your own conclusions Dad is a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant, uh, dentist, okay? And Bertha Cohen is a Polish Jewish immigrant. Um, Went to Hunter College, right? Practiced in chemistry, which is very rare for a girl in that day and age. Graduated summa cum laude, top of her class. Absolutely huge. And now she wanted to go into research, right? Because you've studied chemistry and nobody would have her. Absolutely not. And so, dude, guess what she did? She went all goodwill hunting. Became so, friends with Ben Affleck? No, God, no, no, not like that. Stop it. <laughs> she worked as a secretary and a high school teacher, okay? And then she took a complete, like, unpaid position at a chemistry lab. She wants to go for a graduate degree. Nobody will let her in, okay? Um, and so then she goes to uh, A&P supermarkets, okay? And she works as a food quality supervisor for a food lab. She tested the acidity of pickles and the color of egg yolk going into mayonnaise. All this time, she's like, okay, I can't practice chemistry the way that everybody else in like very formal types of studies and things. But, you know, food science isn't necessarily considered, you know, all that academic. So I'm just going to go do it over here. Um, she was able to get with uh, George H. Hitchings at Burroughs Welcome, which is now GlaxoSmithKline, right, in New York. And Hitchings immediately was very intrigued because she had very interesting ideas about how to, you know, work organic chemistry in such a way to look at how various molecules targeted each other um, in order to produce an effect. And this is really just drugs, okay? Um, The previous method largely being trial and error. 
Yeah, <laughs> alchemy. No, no, no. This was yeah. Our, our yeah. previous age was alchemy and botany. Some cancer cells, you know, sitting in a dish. You know, we had some culture methods by this time. Uh, like, what did you do? I try. I dropped some honey in there. I just dropped some honey. Why'd you do that? Well, you know, because it's yellow and golden, and uh, the cancer cells got a little smaller. <laughs> I think like, I gave them diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But truly, it was very, very difficult um, to, you know, figure out what could latch on to what, you know, just by kind of trial and error. But what Hitchings had thought of was that, you know what? We already know about biochemical pathways that we have natural compounds that are agonists and antagonists of various enzymatic pathways and, and all these kind of things. So why don't we actually imitate these natural compounds? So we'll start with a natural compound and then we'll alter it. Okay. And he said, let's, let's try this. Let's try this. Nucleic acids, right, Jeff? With something that kind of looks like a nucleic acid, but not really. And then when the cell tries to integrate it, it like the, the machinery just breaks down. Like you're throwing a literal, you know, a sabo. You're doing sabotage with the nucleic acid. And now any cell that's trying to divide out of control will accept the artificial compound. It'll try to manufacture its DNA and divide. It can't, it'll die. So Gertrude was the one who actually synthesized these anti-metabolites of purine and just straight up developed thioguanine and mercaptopurine, mercaptopurine, 6MP, still in use today to treat cancer. Let's see if we can just go over a very brief list of some of the things that her research contributed to. Yeah. Santos, you've done such a good job. Let me try and take this one. She developed... She developed pyrimethamine, a treatment for malaria. Trimethoprim, antibiotic for infections <laughs> of your different areas. <laughs> a cyclovir for viral herpes, which never really goes away. And imiran and purinethal for organs that go on vacay. <laughs> Nalarabine for cancer treatment, allopurinol for gout. Because of this in 1988, she got a Nobel shout out. <laughs> one of only a handful of laureates without a doctor's degree and led the national science academy in the year 1990 <laughs> that's it i'm happy now <laughs> that was so good <laughs> that was so good okay the hms pinafore and that amazing parody that dr josh just rattled off absolutely right Taking molecules that were actually nucleic acids, right, and then altering them in order to disrupt cell division or cell function, this is what she was able to do using the same form of molecular mimicry, imitating natural compounds and modifying them to become uh, just like you said, mercaptopurine to treat cancer, azathioprine, which then suppresses the immune system by killing off um, rogue T cells and, and uh, antibody producing cells so that you, you don't um, reject your organs after transplant, still used by, uh, for, for Crohn's disease. Allopurinol, uh, which slows down the production of inflammatory cells in your joints so that you know when you have gout and those, those inflammatory 
inflammatory cells come in. Um, it, it stops those. Pyrimethamine malaria, yes, Josh, but actually uh, the, the disease that I study, toxoplasma, is treated with pyrimethamine. And a lot of people might know this one because that's the medicine that Martin Shkreli, he, he like increased the price of that thing by like 1,500%. Yeah, but those um, are a lot harder to rhyme. Though those are, yeah. <laughs> uh, trimethoprim uh, is a. Uh, it goes along with sulfamethoxazole. Uh, people might know that combination as Bactrim, okay, or Septra, and we still use that to treat, as Josh said, infections in all your places. <laughs> so it can be treated. You can treat meningitis, sepsis, all the way down to your urinary tract. Acyclovir for herpes, which is also a nucleoside compound. Um, nelarabine, which is a nucleoside compound. So she took a simple principle, Josh, to mimic uh, a natural compounds, modify them in order to turn them into drugs, and just made a plethora of, uh, of medications that came out of here. Josh, you said another excellent point. She did all that stuff, gave up the idea of getting a doctorate um, in the midst of all this research. But later on, New York University Tandon School of Engineering, which is used to be Polytechnic University of New York, gave her an honorary PhD and uh, Harvard gave her an SD. And so she did not have uh, these degrees when she got, you know, her Nobel Prize, but she received them and she lived to be called uh, Dr. Elion. And so I think that was 100% deserved. Wish it had happened sooner, poor thing. Um, but that was wonderful. Her, uh, you know, she went out to Duke. She went adjunct professor of pharmacology and experimental medicine. Um, she mentored medical and graduate students, 25 papers when she was out at Duke. And then, you know, she retired from Burroughs Welcome, uh, you know, the, the pharmaceutical company, right? Guess what she did in her retirement? I don't know. She had already cured cancer. So yeah. <laughs> really, what's left? Yeah, she retired to go back full time to the lab. <laughs> she was one of the people, Josh. I want you. I want to see how show you how much this spanned from the advent of cancer therapy. Okay, what, some of the first compounds to treat cancer, all the way over from her retirement, she decided to go back to the lab and she played a significant role in developing AZT, the first drug. Okay, one of the first drugs used to treat HIV and AIDS, still used to this day uh, to treat patients with, uh, with HIV and AIDS. Um, and then the nelarabine, the one that we said at the cancer treatment, that one was discovered right near her death in 1999. <laughs> so this woman was an absolute machine. She basically finished inventing stuff. Like she invented the last thing and went, ah, and then and died. Then she partied <laughs> like it was 1999. <laughs> My song covered all of this. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy about it. She, you know, it's, it's a role model for me as an academic, as a physician. Um, I have other mentors like this that like, that's it. You retire. What do you do when you retire? You get to do whatever research you want. So I'm a cure AIDS. <laughs> oh my God. This woman was so awesome. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. 
If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends, especially this week. Good job, Dr. Santosh. Yeah. (laughs) Until next time, as always, wear a mask, wash your hands, stay safe, and if you have the chance and can keep yourself from having hysterics, happy travels. Hello, I'm having fun. (laughs) No, no, Lolly. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.